On this episode of This Week in Space, it's time to talk archaeoastronomy and planetaria with the Wizard of Griffith Observatory, Dr. Edwin Krupp. Stay with us. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is This Week in Space, episode number 90, recorded on December 8th, 2023, the Wizard of Griffith Observatory. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Melissa, the global leader in contact data quality. Bad data means bad business. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to This Week in Space, the Wizard of Griffith Observatory edition. I'm Rod Pyle and I'm here with my illustrious pal, Tarek Malik. Editor-in-chief of Space.com. Hello, illustrious one. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well, Rod. Well, well, considering I, I still sound a little bit rough, just still a little bit uh, a little bit sick, but what are you going to do? So uh, That's enough whining. Okay. And we're <laughs> going to be joined in a few moments by my dear old friend, Dr. Edwin Krupp, the director of the Griffith Observatory, keeper, keeper of all archaeoastronomical knowledge. Try saying that fast three times. And a very long time ago, my boss for about eight years. Uh, so he'll be coming to us after the first break but first you'll be shocked to know that i have a space joke i'm so i'm so ready for it are you ready okay yeah hey i took my instagram influencer teenage to the planetarium he was shocked to learn he was not the center of the universe <laughs> that's very appropriate is very, very appropriate for this day <laughs> okay and another really weak planetarium joke this one from the uh from ancient histories uh, comic stephen wright I used to work in a planetarium, and we had our own softball team. We practiced in the planetarium. I played second base, so I stood under Saturn. The shortstop stood under Jupiter. Third baseman stood under Mars. And one day, it was really gorgeous outside, so we tried to practice out there, but everyone was just too far away. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. As always, we invite you to join the Space Rangers and send us your best or worst space joke. We appreciate it because you really don't want me digging up more jokes like you <laughs> heard. You guys do better. I just had to take a break from listener uh, submissions today because, of course, we want to do planetarium jokes. That'll be a one-off. Don't forget to do us a solid. Make sure to like, subscribe, and do all that good podcast stuff because uh, we, frankly, really need your numbers. We're trying to stay Stay free and clear in in the public listenership, and we could use your support to do that because, as you know, podcasts are struggling everywhere. Um, so let's uh, let's roll into a oh, let's roll into our headlines. Rod, wake up! <laughs> oh, you xed out my favorite. Okay, so bad day for parachutes, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, NASA actually kind of finally figured out what went wrong with their Osiris-Rex asteroid probes landing um, on September 24th. Now, remember, the landing itself was a success, and in mm-hmm. fact, the the samples are being released everywhere. But uh, there was this weird hiccup where the drogue parachute didn't work as planned, and it was just strange. I mean, the, the spacecraft managed to, to do okay without it, and what they found out was that they had some crossed wires on their spacecraft rod. I mean, literally uh, crossed wires. This isn't like a metaphorical statement. No, no, they got their wires crossed and it sent uh, the wrong signals uh, to the wrong places, uh, which led to the, as I understand it, and I I could have, you know, it's fairly complicated. So, you know, it is in fact rocket science, but it sounds as if um, the signals meant to deploy the parachute, in fact, like cut it and then led it to, to being deployed so that, 
it just you know just went off uh you know after the mm. mains one uh the main parachutes went and um and it was just a, a mistake luckily not a fatal one but one that is i think definitely going to be up there with let's double check this before we you know finish building the spacecraft uh in uh for the next big sample return uh mission well uh, and this could have been a disaster and of course we remember back in the 90s um it was Mars Polar Lander, I think. No, yeah. Mars Polar Lander Mars Polar because Lander, of a programming error or a uh, sensor error. Climate its landing gear early and shut off its rockets, but it was the climate orbiter, climate observer climate observer yeah. that had a units exchange error between Lockheed Martin and JPL and went hurtling right into the planet. But this one seems like it's more on par with the Genesis crash, if you recall, you know, in mm-hmm. the early 2000s when the um, the Genesis uh, probe was bringing back samples from space. I, I, I always right. forget because there was Genesis and Stardust and one was like solar wind and one was the comets and I forget which is which sometimes. But um, Genesis had a, a device, a physical, you know, um, parachute uh, ignition uh, device that was just put in backwards it was in the wrong way um and and that 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 prevented it from firing properly and they didn't deploy uh the the parachutes and you know that that kind of hardware flub where you have your wires crossed reminds me a little bit more of that than like a a computational or a data Mm. input error uh, at that one and so that kind of stuff really shouldn't be happening and they're going to look into how it how it slipped through their their double checks and their tests uh uh in in you know going forward for the next big sample return which Probably going to be from the moon, you know, or from Mars. So you, you don't want to miss well, that. You definitely thing, but, you want know. to get Mars right. Because even yeah. though they're rocks, you still don't want the thing to crater in. Exactly. And as they used to tell us in uh, in mathematics class, double check your work. All right. <laughs> um, uh, do you want to talk about the military moon articles you guys ran? Well, we can talk about that. Yeah, Leonard David, who we've had a friend of the show on the site, did a really great piece for us this week about uh, why there's so much interest in the moon by the U.S. military, particularly DARPA, the Defense for the Advanced Research um, Projects Agency, because they have uh, about three different uh, projects going on uh, over the last couple of years uh, to really start capitalizing on uh, either commercial cooperation with moon explorations or um, or kind of security type operations for, and I quote, the peaceful use of um, uh, the peaceful U.S. and international use of of the moon. Uh, so they've got uh, actually just just this week, they announced some contracts for what they call uh, Luna 10, a 10 year lunar mm-hmm. architecture capability study, which is which is that that program that wants to look at an integrated future lunar infrastructure that you would need to have like a moon base for the military and the civilians to use on, um, uh, you know, over the future or to use around the moon for reconnaissance, for communications, uh, for all of that stuff. They also have a, a program called Logic, uh, the Lunar Operating Guidelines for Infrastructure Consortium. It's really technical, um, but it's, 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 it's about like what are the, the parameters for, for working uh, in, in the cislunar environment. And, uh, and then they have one called, uh, I think it's, you pronounce it Nomad, but it's a novel orbital moon manufacturing materials and mass efficient design for, for, for work at the moon. And it's just, you know, interesting that they're looking at the, the moon as a new place of operations. And this is, 
you know, kind of something that seems like it's out of the early days of the space race, you know, the moon as a battlefield. We have seen the role of space increase in recent times with uh, satellite jamming and whatnot uh, in low Earth orbit, uh, particularly like in uh, Ukraine and whatnot. We, we, we've seen that uh, going on. And this this is kind of a another uh, another step to secure that that highest of grounds, uh, you know, for military interest. In fact, the Space Force is working with Australia and some others, I think UK, uh, to develop a deep space radar for observation and reconnaissance as well as part of all of this. And so it's we were just a very uh, great read about why that's important for uh, national security and why the Space Force is really into it. So. Well, and I just as a reminder for those who may not know, if you want to read about some of those crazy programs planned in the early days of the space race from a lunar base that was capable of defending itself against communist lunar soldiers to nuking the moon to orbital platforms and nuclear weapons and other unfriendly things like that, check out Amazing Stories of the Space Age, my 2016 book that's still for sale. I was going to say, right. do, you have a, do you have a book about it, Rod? Because uh, I, I, I'm there I, for it. I actually have a couple. I Also, Interplanetary Robots had some of that stuff. But Amazing Stories, I think, is my favorite just because writing about all the wacko stuff we thought of but didn't do. And that was a <laughs> Werner von Braun plan to put moon soldiers up there. Uh, but I, so we could talk about that uh, all day long. Let's close on the strange case. Uh, th- these are all Space.com stories, by the way. The strange case of the missing space tomato. That's right. That's right. At long last, you know, the International Space Station this week celebrated its 25th anniversary. Happy birthday uh, to uh, the International Space Station. And and during that, uh, uh, the Space Station astronauts got a call to celebrate it. And they finally said that they have found a tomato grown on the space station by astronaut Frank Rubio that he apparently lost. Like he it got away from him uh, eating, while, yeah. while he was up there back in, uh, back in March, I think is, um, is when he lost it, uh, when he was harvesting tomatoes and he, when he landed, he said he didn't know what ha- had happened to it. And, um, astronaut Jasmine, um, McBelly actually during this anniversary event this week said that they, they finally found it. It was um, behind some equipment in in uh, as a it's a red uh, a red robin dwarf tomato, and it's it's about an inch wide, so very very small. And uh, and they they found it uh, behind some uh, some hidden equipment that that you know a lot of things ended up uh, 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 drifting away from there. astronauts. But right. you, know, you don't want food because man, that can that can lead to a bad day later on. So although in an atmosphere that's that dry and kind of, I assume, a very low bacterial load, you probably don't get the kind of icky stuff you get down here, right? Not not as much. It'll it'll just dry out, I believe, over time. Yeah. You know, it's it's it, it, they have lots of really good atmospheric controls. I mean, this is, it's a six bedroom house, but the, it's all recycled. It's all uh, uh, ventilated uh, over time. So, yeah, just like what would happen if you left an astronaut I, in a corner. I'm just sad that we didn't get a picture of that yet. I'm, I, I I will be surprised if NASA doesn't release the uh, the the offending. Uh, escaped tomato uh, anytime soon. So. Well, if anybody finds it, it will be the sleuths at space.com. All right, <laughs> let's, uh, let's go to a break. And when we come back, we will meet Dr. Ed Krupp. Stay with us. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Melissa, the data quality experts. For over 38 years, Melissa has helped companies harness the value of their customer data to drive insight, maintain data quality, and support global intelligence. All data expires up to 25% per year. Having clean and verified data helps customers to have a smooth, error-free purchase experience. 
Flexible to fit into any business model, Melissa verifies addresses from more than 240 countries to ensure only valid billing and shipping addresses enter your system. Melissa's international address validation cleans and corrects street addresses worldwide, automatically transliterating from one system to another, for example, Chinese to Cyrillic. Focus your spending where it matters the most. Melissa offers free trials, sample codes, and flexible pricing, an ROI guarantee, and unlimited technical support to customers all around the world. Once you're signed up with Melissa, it's easy to integrate their other services too, such as Melissa Identity Verification. You can increase compliance, reduce fraud, and improve onboarding. Melissa Enrich, gain insight into who and where your customers are. And Melissa's education portal is available to individuals with valid.edu email addresses. This popular feature is designed to introduce future data scientists to the inherent value of data and its global relevance in an ever-increasing range of industries and applications. Download the free Melissa Lookups app on Google Play or the Apple App Store. No sign-up is required. You can validate an address and personal identity in the USA or Canada. You can check global phone numbers to find caller, carrier, and geographical information. And you can check global IP address information and more. Melissa has achieved the highest level of security status available by gaining FedRAMP authorization. While these technologies are exclusively for governmental agencies, all Melissa users benefit from the superior level of security. Melissa solutions and services are GDPR and CCPA compliant and meet all SOC 2 and HIPAA high trust standards for information security management. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash twit. And we are back with Dr. Ed Krupp from the Griffith Observatory. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, just a pleasure. And, of course, to see you, Rob, uh, Rod, a veteran of Griffith Observatory. Well, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And it just occurred to me this morning, I've known you since... I believe I started at Griffith and uh, working for you in 1975, and I've never once interviewed you in all the time since then, which seems shameful to me. Well, you know, there was a lot going on at the time of the Big Bang in the universe, and both of us were distracted. <laughs> That's true. So we're here with Tarek Malik. Tarek, say hi. Hello. Well, I, I, to me, it's a pleasure to see you again, Ed. We've actually talked a few times in the past, just you know, with space.com stories and about the sure. Griffith Observatory when it was revealed. And you and I met in 97 when Skywatchers, Shaman, and Kings came out, and I saw you um, give a great talk there at Griffith Observatory as a very young astronomy student in Los Angeles, and so it's always great uh, to, to see you again. Uh, the, the same, of course, and, and delighted that you pick up the book and show people, although it is uh, <laughs> out of print, uh, but... Um, you know, there, there, there. You can copies can be had from secondary sources at very inflated prices. I, well, and I, if you're if you're interested in getting it back in print, we should talk after after yeah. we're done here. I may have some thoughts for you. Um, <laughs> I my first memory of you in uh, presentation, I think, was Stars Over America in 1976, the Planetarium Show. Uh, a good memory. That was the bicentennial show where we we probed, uh, in a sense, highlights of American history with astronomical twists to them, and uh, and let everybody know that uh, a fellow from the colonial times, Benjamin Banneker, uh, actually uh, was an astronomer at the time of the revolution, and he wound up in a postage stamp eventually. But it was um, a, a fun uh, show, of course, for that uh, that moment. 
and not to wax too too much in in memory sense, but uh, I remember you set you created a slide montage with rapidly firing slide projectors, of course, because that was the that era uh, of the Apollo program set to music from Hawaii Five O, which I thought was just boffo back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 fact is that particular sequence, and I, I'm not sure that the audience really cares about old technology and, and former planetaria, uh, but it's interesting to me that you remember that because I remember that very well, and it was an indication of the transformation of technology in planetaria that was going on at the time. We certainly weren't quite at the realm of all dome digital animation. That that took uh, another, uh, what, 25 years or so, uh, but you could see that people wanted to go in that direction. Well, and, and John, who's on the board today, just mentioned our, our audience is very interested in old technology. So, uh, Tarek, excuse me for this for a few moments, but I just want to let people know back in, in this time, the 70s and 80s and 90s, up through the renovation of the observatory in the 2000s, we had a Zeiss, I believe it was a Mark IV planetarium projector that was completely electromechanical, supported oh, I, by, I, I love don't know, those things. 40 ectographic slide projectors. Do I have that right? Something like uh, that? It, it got up to be a bigger number than that by the time we were done. The, the, it was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 projectors altogether. Wow. I just I love those those projectors because they look like robots coming up out of the center of the planetarium. And they're all covered in like lights and, and doodads and whatever. And then all of a sudden the night sky is all around you. And, uh, and then you know you're in for a show. So two things about that um, in that uh, planetarium show that Rod remembers so vividly with the Apollo uh, launch with all of those projectors. And, of course, the sound effect that you got besides the, the musical soundtrack was the click, click, click of all of those projectors right. going one after another <laughs> changing. Uh, so you had to get the music up loud enough so that you wouldn't uh, hear that. But there was a moment where you were carrying the audience up allegedly into space and when you hit that crescendo of the music and of the slide projectors suddenly everything goes dark with all of those slide projectors and the stars pop on mm -hmm. and you're out there in space with, with the apollo capsule and it as crude as it was it was really a wonderful emotional moment but but let me carry that thought just a little bit uh farther because that zeiss mark IV projector is still on display at griffith observatory when we closed in 2002 for this five-year renovation and expansion, uh, the thing was sparking. And so the last thing you want in the oh, theater man. is extraneous light from, from uh, electrical discharge from a star projector. Uh, but we knew to save it. Uh, that projector had extraordinary history. Uh, it was, in fact, used by the Apollo astronauts in the early stages to train on celestial navigation. And we still have, obviously, the projector and the sort of the lawn lounge that they had and the mask that they used to block out the sky to the very small window. All of those are on display here now at Griffith Observatory in the Gunther Depths of Space to tell that particular remarkable story about uh, Griffith Observatory's place in, in space. So I, I, I fear I've, I've jumped ahead here. What I really meant to start with was your career at Griffith. So you started off as a young man. Uh, fascinated with museums and uh, continued your interest in astronomy and science up through getting your PhD at UCLA. Uh, and and then almost immediately, I guess actually while you were still a PhD candidate, you were hired up the observatory, right? 
Yeah, uh, I uh, grew up in the museums of Chicago and its Adler Planetarium, moved out here in the 1950s. And uh, that kind of continued, just as you said, Rod. Uh, but my thesis advisor at UCLA, George A. Bell, a really remarkable pioneer in popularization of astronomy, despite the, the, the fact that he was also a, a completely uh, capable and important research astronomer. Uh, but he um, had a close affiliation with Griffith Observatory himself as a guide when he was working up at uh, Mount Wilson and, and then at Palomar. And uh, he called me into his office one day and said, uh, Ed, they've got an opening for a lecture at Griffith Observatory. I think you ought to take the job. And I dutifully nodded because he was my advisor. And then I simply ignored him because I really <laughs> didn't have any interest in going over to Griffith and doing this. I was a serious astronomer and I wasn't about to be spending my time in a planetarium. And uh, George called me into his office again two weeks later and said, Ed, they've got an opening for a planetarium lecture at Griffith Observatory. And I think you ought to take it. Uh, so finally, I got the message and uh, I was hired by the man who was holding uh, forth in a, uh, a period between the appointment of uh, the new director and the retirement of the previous director, Dr. Clemenshaw. Bill Kaufman was coming. And that was a man named Leon Hall who who hired me as uh, a lecturer. And I uh, obviously operated as a lecturer for two years, uh, finished up the Ph.D. and then went looking for a job. And had no interest in staying in Los Angeles, no interest in working in museums or planetaria. And the only job opening available to me out of maybe 40, 50 applications I made uh, was a job for which I didn't apply, which was curator at Griffith Observatory. <laughs> so I took that and figured I'd stay a couple of years and, and move on. Can I can I ask is. When when Rod's question began, you're already interested in astronomy. You're you're studying it at UCLA. But how did you get there? Was it something from your youth where you're like, yeah, I really dig the sky and what's in it, or or was it through that fascination with with museums that led you to astronomy in the first place? What was that kind of seed there? Well, thanks for asking that question. There's an interesting side note to it that has to do with at least uh, in, let us say, the 20th century, the production of astronomers. Uh, I once went to a meeting of the American Astronomical Society when I was in grad school, and a person was giving a, a presentation to the, the crowd of approximately 3,000 astronomers. And that was just about all the astronomers in the country at that time. Uh, that, <laughs> You could have a meeting like that and have everybody there. No longer possible uh, like that. But this person who was giving this program uh, asked the audience then of assembled astronomers, how many of you decided to become an astronomer as a young child? And just about every hand in the room went up. And then he said, how many of you decided to become an astronomer because of a look through a telescope, a visit to a planetarium, or a book. And every hand went up. And so suddenly you know how you make astronomers. Uh, you make them when they're young and you have <laughs> one of those three things. Well, in my case, it was eight years old, already interested in museum things, it, like kids are, you know, everything from dinosaurs to butterflies, whatever, and astronomy. Uh, and uh, my parents found a book, I think it was being sold door to door, uh, and uh, they uh, purchased it for me. It was about astronomy. And that book was the thing that made me decide to become an astronomer. Wow. 
Wow. Well, and a- and beyond being astronomer and a planetarium director, you're also a showman. And one of the things I found so extraordinary about your career, and I haven't worked with that many other planetaria, but you were a person that would step out of the console, out of the office, into the public eye, whether it was uh, somewhere inside the observatory or out front, and really perform, and especially for kids. And I tried to find a picture of you in your wizard garb, but I couldn't find it. I always thought that was particularly effective. But uh, allegedly, at least as is written in Wikipedia, at one point back in back of the day, you turned to your wife and said, you know, this job isn't so much science as showbiz. And then later, more enthusiastically said, hey, this job is showbiz, as if that turned out to be a net positive. Yeah, it was negative at the start. Uh, and that was when I was uh, a lecturer, especially. Um, but a couple of things happened fairly quickly. One is you realize every day is different. And and that suddenly becomes valuable as a an asset for life. And the second thing is, just as you said, Rod, uh, the it, it took a little while, uh, but you know uh, the smell of the grease grease paint and the roar of the crowd uh, is intoxicating. And uh, and there you go. It reminds me uh, of another very important um, element, though, of all of this business with respect to Griffith Observatory in particular. Uh, these institutions populate the world. The Planetarium Projector just celebrated its 100th anniversary. It was in, invented um, in, in 1923, of course, in Germany. Uh, but uh, each each place sort of got started and has its own character. And there are there are three things that really make Griffith Observatory what it is. One of them, you could say, is really just location, location, location. <laughs> and there you've got three right there. Uh, but the visibility of this place uh, on the hillside in Los Angeles is mm-hmm. the hood ornament of the city uh, is is, in, in fact, profound in terms of public perception. But the uh, the second thing is in fact a governance. It's owned and operated by the city of Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks, which has nothing to do with research astronomy or even right. the astronomical uh, uh, what uh, uh, institutions with which we might guess. But that ensures the populist nature of the institution, which was what Colonel Griffith originally had in mind when he thought about this place and left money in his will for it. But number three, the third thing, and this is no small deal, Griffith Observatory overlooks Hollywood. It's close (laughs) to Hollywood. And the bond between Hollywood and Griffith Observatory, what you might think is a little odd, we seep into each other. And Hollywood's storytelling, its values in that sense, uh, became from the beginning, a part of Griffith Observatory, and then Hollywood took advantage, used Griffith Observatory over and over again, so much so that it ought to have a star on the boulevard. <laughs> well, and you, and you bring up a really good point. I, I want to let Tarek get his questions in because otherwise I'll take the whole hour. But as a kid, of course, like anybody who grew up in L.A., Griffiths was this shining beacon of science up on the hill. I used to take the bus up there, I think was starting when I was about 10 or 11, grind my mirror in the basement and your your uh, telescope making workshops but the thing that amazed me was i started working there because as a as a museum guide of course you answer the phones in the evening and so forth people would call up with anything that had anything to do with science questions <laughs> i think the the biggest outlier i got that wasn't a crazy person was somebody who called and said that they were down on vermont and hollywood boulevard or vermont and sunset maybe 
and they had found a frog and they wanted to know what to do with it. And I thought, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, what do you say? But on the other hand, this just shows the incredible reach that the observatory has into yeah. people's minds and spirits, if you will, about being this icon of science. Well, I didn't I don't think I ever heard the story about the frog, but I do think that the 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 principles behind it are valid. The public perception of the place is just like you saw in the billboard for the Dragnet movie uh, years ago, uh, which borrowed from the old Dragnet television show, the detective police sh show set in Los Angeles. And uh, the words under the badge there of City Hall uh, and Griffith Observatory is right behind it in the billboards. Just the facts. And that's what people want and expect from Griffith Observatory, authenticity, accuracy. And so if we, we stick with that. And uh, I'm not surprised that we get inquiries that go to the biological realm as well that we're totally unprepared to answer. Tarek? Well, you know, I, I was going to ask um, a, a little bit about what, something you mentioned earlier when you were describing the, the projector itself. First of all, I've... I, I learned a new word today that the the word for planetarium in plural is planetaria. I, I don't know how I never knew that before. So thank you for for that. But let me interrupt you and tell you there's great dispute in the planetarium right. community. And <laughs> and, uh, and I'm I'm lo I'm looked upon as a person who still uses a flip phone because I use that plural. <laughs> well, I love it. I think it's a wonderful word. But I wanted to add, because you had mentioned when you were describing the projector and its use uh, to help train the Apollo astronauts there. And I was just I was just curious for a little more uh, about how that worked. I mean, that that was a little bit of a surprise to me. And I can't wait to come see the exhibit because the last time I, I was at the observatory, there wasn't the whole expanded um uh, stuff that you have there now, uh, but how how did that? I mean, who who would think? You know, let's let's go to the observatory and send our moonwalkers to learn how to chart the night sky there. How did that even come about? No, fair question, and I don't think we know all the ins and outs of it. The in terms of correspondence and documentation from that period, it's remarkably sparse. Uh, but we do have photographs, and and there there are a couple of things that appeared in our little monthly magazine, the Griffith Observer. Um, but the bottom line is that that uh, the uh, NASA uh, folks, whoever were dealing with the astronauts, realized that they needed a backup system for navigation if everything fell through. And, and it was understood, I think, as a sort of a natural thing. Well, where do you learn the stars? Under the real sky or maybe a planetarium? And there, there were two places that were sort of fit to do this uh, that um, – uh, were approached, and, and Griffith Observatory was, was one of them. The other was uh, on the other side of the country, uh, North Carolina. Uh, and so both of us hosted uh, a group of about seven or so, and the idea was that they would sit reclined in the, this sort of uh, lawn lounge uh, under the stars projected above them with a mask of metal over in front of their face with just a small hole in it. And that hole corresponded to the aperture of a port in the capsule. And then the planetarium would be moved around so that they would grow accustomed to recognizing small sections of the sky in that window and therefore know, ah, that's that star. Uh, it, obviously, they're not worried about the entire sky. They're looking for bright headlights in the sky mm -hmm. that they can use. So it wasn't a system that they had to have. 
But from the perspective of prudence and planning, it was a resource that no one wanted to go without. And so that's why they came here. We have a guest book that goes back to 1935. And when you get uh, get to the 60s there, all of those astronaut signatures are in that. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really something. Uh, we are going to take a short break and then we're going to be back to talk about the observatory's incredible renovation. So go nowhere. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stenge Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stenge Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stenge Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stenge, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. We're back. Uh, so since the time I met you, I think, plans were being drafted, at least in your mind, to uh, to enhance the observatory. Because when I was working there, when you started working there, we had a lot of very old exhibits. Some stuff didn't work. The building had been heavily used for decades, and the wear was beginning to show. And uh, my understanding, at least the time, was that not a lot of revenue was coming back from the city in those days, and you were kind of operating on a short leash. And uh, this is not meant to sound like fluffery, but I really think as a sheer accomplishment of just raw willpower over the next 40 years, you finally got this amazing renovation in place. And I know there was help from Friends of the Observatory and other groups, but this was really kind of a Sisyphusian task, was it not? I, I guess in perspective, that's a fair assessment, and thanks for that. Uh, at the time, uh, I'm not sure that at any particular point I realized just how long it would take. Uh, but the fact is that in government and certainly municipalities and in the circumstance that you describe, Rob, where by the time we get to the 70s and even before that, Griffith Observatory was sort of taken for granted uh, and not regarded as uh, much of an investment uh, for the city uh, mm -hmm. or, for that matter, among um, many people. Even though it was visible, it, it wasn't really well known. But the crisis we faced was obvious, and that was in the planetarium. And we knew that no matter what, sooner or later, that projector would fail because that's what happens. And you couldn't repair it. And so you had to be thinking about what are you going to do in the future? And that's where this really began is, OK, I'm all right right now. The Griffith Observatory, 10 years from now, say 15, uh, it's going to be in trouble if we don't plan for this. And and I foolishly believe that if I announced that we should plan for it, people would, in fact, plan for it. Uh, but that didn't happen. And uh, as you correctly point out, it took decades uh, to build the infrastructure of of support and of uh, just uh, commitment. Uh, but over time, uh, that occurred. And it was really very much a product of a few people representing key institutions. And, and certainly you're correct, Rod, uh, that you uh, mentioned Friends of the Observatory, which is now Griffith Observatory Foundation. And one of the most unique public and private partnerships, I think, on the planet, let alone the city of Los Angeles, which had never experienced that kind of relationship uh, with an outside foundation. And so with that tool, 
the city was able to do things it couldn't do. Uh, the, the foundation had a certain kind of flexibility, not just in raising money, but in leveraging uh, particular technologies that the city could never purchase directly because of the way city systems work. So that was uh, part of the essential element of it. But I, I have to emphasize as well that um, there was a, a person in the city of Los Angeles who really is an unsung hero for all of this. And uh, really two, uh, one of them is Ron Deaton, a name people wouldn't know, but he was a high level uh, individual in the city in a variety of positions, not least of which when I knew him was chief legislative analyst. And he looked at this at one point early in the thing, and he recognized that this needs to be done. And he would just send me little hints from time to time. So he, he, he operated from the side, but he really was a person that brought it in to play as the time matured. And the other person, also no longer with us, Council Member Tom Labonge of this district. Uh, he, too, was probably the best friend Griffith Park ever had. And Griffith Observatory uh, benefited greatly from his interest and support for the facility. And when that happened, it had been after a long period of time, I mean, somewhat separated, probably by a decade or and a half or so. But in the 70s and 80s, you went through a long period of time where a large revenue source was the show called Laserium that ran twice a night. But it was also a source of a lot of wear and tear on the observatory and the staff. I mean, those it, it was incredibly well attended, but it was it tended to be a rough crowd sometimes. Yeah, th that program and other things like it uh, kind of overtake uh, municipal institutions. They uh, they don't necessarily have the flexibility to just pick up and, and move along with changes in the times. The the way they're budgeted, the way they're staffed, the, all of the changes in, in the specializations that you need over time just doesn't happen. And so your reflection is, is very correct. We kind of exhausted the resource. Uh, some of that money gradually there, and particularly through that period, it was possible to funnel into uh, a, an account, a special capital account that was created for this. And I looked upon that account as a um, a, a kind of a, uh, a secret weapon for the future. Mm. Uh, we would uh, get then a, a percentage, and it was a small percentage, but a percentage from every one of those Lazarium tickets, which were, in fact, uh, uh, really uh, wearing out the building with those audiences and, and not really being able to uh, facilitate their, their presence there. But by the time we got to the renovation uh, and contracts going out and all of that, trying to build the budget, um, I had managed to save $2 million in that account. Uh, and that was unheard of. I mean, it was, if anybody knew, was paying attention that there were $2 million laying around an account by, for Griffith Observatory, I'm sure that there would have been hands raised and then out reaching for it. But there was a moment, uh, in the various crises of financing and moving forward with the, the capital project, uh, where I was able to say to people who were thinking, oh, wait a minute, we need $2 million. And I said, well, we've got $2 million. And so <laughs> it, it worked out. Uh, it was amazing for people that we had it, but that, that was, in fact, uh, one of the, the more uh, endearing moments of, uh, of our financial crises.
Dr. Krebs says, hold well, on, I, let me open my wallet. Oh, yeah, I, <laughs> there are no moths flying out this time. I just want to say, you know, I, I know Tarek's got questions about Hollywood, and I want to make sure we talk about uh, your research interests and your books. But just in, in closing this section, I, I didn't have a chance to get up there right away after the renovation, but I have to say, having spent a lot of time in that building prior to that, it was a brilliant brilliant job. I mean, there were so many things that were talked about over the years when I was still working there, everything from how to renovate the snack bar to what are we going to do with those awful wooden ramps? We used to take three or four guys to push wheelchairs up the front stairs, which was kind of dangerous, uh, frankly. And the renovation addressed all those concerns and so many more. And some of the things that you guys designed, I'm sure as a team, but the Einstein statue downstairs, the New Moore Theater, that whole expansion under the front lawn, the restaurant, even the little details upstairs where you sort of realigned some of the traffic flow in the halls of science, you just knocked it out of the park. So huge congratulations on that. <laughs> well, very, very sweet of you to say. And and I think the the point to sort of preserve from, from your perspective, Rod, is that we did, in fact, depend on the accumulated heritage and understanding of the observatory. And that meant all levels of staff. This wasn't just a top-down kind of project from people who weren't innately uh, connected with it. It was bottom-up from the observatory. Mm. And that meant that we could be hands-on, and I mean at all levels, in the concept and the ultimate design. Yeah, I just wanted to to follow up because you you earlier you described Griffith as the hood ornament of Los Angeles and yet there's this clear iconography that goes along with the observatory and planetarium when you think of Los Angeles you think of the observatory and if you when you see that picture of it you know that that's Hollywood in Los Angeles and Rod and I were going through just kind of like our our list of our favorite uh, what is it, cameos? I think you would say of the observatory in, in, in movies like, uh, like, well, there's Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean and The Rocketeer and The Terminator, one of my favorites, of course, but La La Land and Rocky Jones Space Ranger. And I'm just right. wondering, <laughs> that, that that's a good one from Rod, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering if you think it's the design of the observatory, the, the location, that commanding location there, looking out over Los Angeles, what is the draw that gives it the gravitas that we see translated, you know, on screen? Because you see that picture, you know where you are and what it means. So I, I think you put your finger on it right away. One is, in fact, the location uh, that it is commanding. It looks serious. It's a dignified building with a very special character. I mean, it's got domes, for gosh sake. <laughs> and, and so so people recognize it as that. And that means and this is the case in the early days. It was used uh, as a set in that sense for everything from the Palace of Ming the Merciless in the Flash Gordon serials to uh, the uh, uh Fortress of Solitude for Superman and and, and mm. so on. But we held a special place in our hearts for Rebel Without a Cause in the 50s because that was the first film that cast Griffith Observatory as Griffith Observatory. <laughs> and in fact, the, the spirit of that film, the theme of that film, had to do with human beings and their relationship with the cosmos. It was all about 
human action and, and uh, you know, very personal tragedies and all. But but there was a cosmic perspective built into that film by by the director and, and the screenwriter. And that actually didn't get repeated again until La La Land. And La La Land took a totally different view of the observatory. But the observatory was Griffith Observatory. It functioned as Griffith Observatory in that film. And so we have a particular affection for, for that one as well. I was in the building, of course, when the filming for La La Land took place. And I knew the filming was coming. And all I really knew was this title, which I thought was lame. And I, and I thought, well, maybe I better go up and just have a look at what's going on. It was going to be a big crew. And in fact, there was stuff all over, cables, cameras, everything all over the place. And I got up to the historic level, to the central rotunda, now the Keck Rotunda, where the pendulum is. And I realized uh, th that that scene was was just about to occur where, where the couple come in on the side door, which, of course, is impossible. We'd never let that happen. Uh, but they come <laughs> in and they make their way past the Tesla coil and then to the rotunda where this this extraordinary choreography dancing around the pendulum takes place. And as that was going on, I or starting, I dropped down to the stairs to watch a monitor to see it. And I watched the camera work of, of this film being produced before my eyes, where the camera followed them, brought them to the rotunda, and then swung around in this highly unconventional way that went up to the murals on the ceiling above the pendulum. Nobody ever includes the murals at Griffith Observatory <laughs> right, in a movie, right. for God's sakes. And, and it was so artfully and, and beautifully done that as soon as that scene was shot, I went downstairs, saw the deputy director, Mark Pine, and I said, this film is going to do the same thing the observatory that, that Rebel Without a Cause did. And it did. <laughs> nice. Well, and, and, I, and I think, you know, going to back to your, your comments about the notoriety of the observatories had over the, the past decades, you've got to take some credit for that, too, because... You've done outreach, everything from what I've already described about speaking to kids in the front lawn of the observatory and so forth to a substantial amount of TV. You cultivated the local press. Uh, as I recall, in particular, ABC, was it George Fishbeck, the weatherman? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, that was a really valued connection for us. And you worked it all like a master. So I think you need to take some credit for that. But as long as we're talking about credit, can you just give a few moments uh, to Samuel Ocean? Who is he and how did that come about in terms of support for the observatory? Yeah, and I'm very glad you mentioned that, Rod. Uh, of course, the, the planetarium, the completely transformed planetarium at Griffith Observatory is the, the Samuel Ocean Planetarium. Uh, and Samuel Ocean uh, was businessman. Uh, in Southern California, Los Angeles in particular, uh, and uh, in the course of his life, uh, generated a fortune. And as the project was moving along, and of course it was moving along without all of the money needed, there was critical mass there, but getting to the finish line was going to be a problem. So we continued, uh, that's the foundation and Griffith Observatory, uh, continued to be searching for sources. And the, the oceans, uh, Sam and Linda Ocean had come by and wanted to see the place. They were, they were looking for an opportunity to, uh, make a, a donation investment. And over a period of time, we, we worked back and forth with them. And then quite, um, sadly, uh, Mr. Ocean passed away in the midst mm -hmm. of that. 
But after his passing, his his widow, Linda Ocean, who is still with us and who is a remarkable contributor to the California Science Center as well. And, and the Endeavor project over there with the space shuttle getting right. that remarkable asset uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, but Linda Ocean uh, continued to work with us and made a major donation to the project, which helped get us over the finish line in the, in the capital that we had to raise. And so as, as part of that, in honor of Sam Ocean, we named the, the planetarium the Samuel Ocean Planetarium. Well, that, that, that's quite a tribute. Thank you very much. And I, I, so, Tarek, we need to talk about archaeoastronomy and cultural yes. astronomy. So yes. let's do that as soon as we come back from this break. Stay with us. Okay, Tarek, I've hogged the show too long. <laughs> Why don't you do the kickoff here? Well, I did not know that archaeoastronomy was even a thing until I met you, Dr. Krupp that first time back in 1997 and you had given this wonderful talk you were dressed in your garb too your wizard garb uh for that for that discussion um and and so um so i was really i mean i I, just like i didn't know that you could be a space reporter uh when i found out that that was a job i didn't know that you could be an archaeoastronomer as well and i I was just hoping that you could give us like a a bit of a glimpse in our, our listeners as well of course about the role it has, what it is, and how it is this great kind of story and and path that lets us understand the people that came before us and how they they had a connection with the night sky, so that we too can appreciate our connection with the night sky. And I, I guess the the place to start there is what what, what is archaeoastronomy and, and and what is it that you do to try to piece it together? Well, well, first you have it right there in a in a nutshell. The, the examination of our ancestors' interaction with the sky is obviously interesting from the perspective of who were they and what did they do. But it also illuminates our own bond, our own relationship with the sky, which is not identical to that of our ancestors, but something that we don't necessarily think about, at least as as diligently or perhaps as helpfully as we could in understanding who we are and what we should do next, of course, which is always our crucial decision. But uh, the the whole business of archaeoastronomy is really just the study of ancient and prehistoric and traditional astronomy. So it's not modern astronomy and it's not quite the history of astronomy, although that's a very close neighbor to it. But the difference primarily with uh, history and so-called archaeoastronomy is that the history of astronomy relies on on written texts. Mm-hmm. With archaeoastronomy, your your evidence is a lot looser, monuments, and that's really how it began with prehistoric monuments. And it really began with places like Stonehenge, where it was argued, and particularly effectively in the 1960s by an astronomer, Gerald Hawkins, that Stonehenge was intentionally aligned, and he claimed as an astronomical observatory and uh, computer. Well, in the decades that have passed, I, I think it's fair to say we've grown much more sophisticated about this evidence and about the past. And archaeoastronomy is probably far better looked upon as a uh, uh, something that falls in the realm of cultural astronomy. How how does the relationship uh, with the sky affect uh, human culture in the past and in the present? Uh, but the investigation of alignments of prehistoric monuments is certainly part of, of this story. But it involves, um, in, in fact, you mentioned archaeoastronomers, and, and I'm not even sure there really are archaeoastronomers. <laughs> that, that is... Maybe there shouldn't be archaeoastronomers because it's a multidisciplinary inquiry. You've got 
artists, you've got art historians, you've got archaeologists, you've got anthropologists, you've got architects, you've got astronomers, you've got people who are historians of religion. All of these people are bringing their specialized knowledge to this particular focus to see if we can illuminate a little bit more about how people see the sky. So it might be the ancient Maya and and where they have minimal records that have survived for us, but we can read some of that and realize that they they tracked uh, the the planet Venus and others with remarkable accuracy over a period of centuries and developed calendars that were crucial uh, for their society uh, to um, so, some would say infamous calendars <laughs> far, far off the field from that yeah I, I, I was gonna ask about the the Mayan calendars as a, as a popular example because people know what that you is just had but, to I know. <laughs> But was that was that a just as a quick follow up? Was that something that sparked your your interest early in your astronomical studies, or did you discover it later and then like find out just how deep that rabbit hole goes back through time? Yeah, I I think that you know archaeology is sort of like dinosaurs and astronomy that most kids sort of come up against that and they find some romance in it, and I was no different. But I didn't really pursue that or look at it very closely until uh, I was out of grad school and in fact working uh, my first year here at Griffith Observatory and anticipating this remarkable thing after six years of graduate school that as an employee of the city of Los Angeles, I would be entitled to a two-week vacation <laughs> one year later. And I thought I ought to use that time well. And uh, there were a couple of snags It's not worth repeating repeating uh, the full story now. But the bottom line is I decided to go to Britain to have a look at these prehistoric monuments because a book by a gentleman named Alexander Tom, a really an engineer, a professor of engineering in Scotland. And the key book was called Megalithic Lunar Observatories. Well, I knew <laughs> what megalithic is, big stones. I knew what lunar is. That's the moon. And I knew what observatories were, but I didn't know how they fit together. And so uh, I decided I'd go and have a look at them. And the charm is, in those days, you could take, uh, in that case, I was gone for three weeks, uh, a three-week trip to Britain, look at all of these sites in Scotland and, and England, come back, and you were an expert. And so <laughs> by becoming an expert after a vacation, uh, it opened up a lot of doors. And, and you find, well, there's a handful of people looking at things like medicine wheels in the Rockies, mm -hmm. uh, the Maya stuff in Mexico, here and there. And I started looking at the things that other people weren't looking at. Yeah. Wonderful. So so I have a two-part question. Uh, it, it's been written that you visited somewhere up, upwards of 2,000 sites in your career, which is a lot. Uh, and um, I guess my, my two-part question is, which one of those really stand out in your mind for either being magnificent or just an incredible accomplishment for the culture of the time? And is there anything that people in the Southern California or Western States area might think of as regional that's significant? Yeah, I uh, those are really good questions. And it's impossible, given my mentality, uh, to say, ah, this is really the place. But let me mention a couple of examples of things that might generate a little sense of the color. Um, for one place that I really love uh, is the village of Walpi. This is a Hopi village on First Mesa. This is in northeast uh, Arizona. And we know exactly what the sun chief did 
at the village of Walpi because an anthropologist was there at the end of the 19th century, wrote it down, drew pictures. And we you can go, you can visit to Walpi today and you can look at the places where the sun chief went, the top of the house of the bear clan and out to the far end of the front of the mesa. There's nothing marked there. There's nothing there that would tell you this was the key place for doing astronomy at that village. <laughs> and yet it was. And so I found it very entertaining and very satisfying to be walking at Walpi where you're not permitted to photograph, but just being on the property of, of a known uh, astronomer at that village at a particular time. The other place I want to mention, totally different, is the Temple of Hathor at Dendera in Egypt. Uh, the Temple of Hathor is completely covered with astronomical imagery. The main hall filled with columns up at the high ceiling, 50 feet over your head, is every element of that ceiling maps not like a sky map, but as a um, a symbolic device, uh, the stars that were important to the Egyptians, names them all, the constellations, things we can recognize, things we can't, the hours of the day and so on. And uh, when I first went to see that place, it was still pretty muddy from the smoke that had been allowed to gather up there over a couple thousand, well, multiple thousands years. Mm. The Egyptians recently have cleaned that building up and it is gorgeous. The murals have survived and it's one of those places I'd like to go back to and, and see now now that it's in its glory. And then finally, you asked about what about here regionally? Here's the trouble. We know that California uh, Indians really did astronomy. We know quite a bit about it from ethnography uh, right here in, in Southern California. Uh, much of it is associated with places that we don't know specifically or places that are very restricted to access, places that uh, where the, the um, tribes like the Chumash painted uh, in rock shelters and such. And these have been explored and examined for their astronomical potential. Most of them don't have it, but a few do, and, uh, and throughout the state. So some of those are exquisite places, but unfortunately their fragility and the mm. restriction to uh, access to them doesn't make them public places. You really have to learn about them remotely. And I suspect as the years go by, more and more of uh, the virtual reality will be bringing places like that to people online. I had the I had the pleasure of of uh, doing some tours of the the Southwest in in high school. We went to, through Chaco Canyon and 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 the like. And I remember being struck at at dwellings with windows cut in the corners that were clearly to to let the uh, night sky landmarks through or or day daytime landmarks through um, to help uh, to help track the sky. And that led me to a question that uh, you know might need some imagination uh, Ed, for the future. But I'm wondering what, if anything, stands out to you today that in 200, 300, 500 years, people can use to look back at our version of, of archaeoastronomy. You know, in New York, I'm, I'm, you know, we're based in New York. People talk about the, um, the night sky on top of the, uh, the Grand Central uh, uh, Terminal, for example. Where you can see <laughs> five stars, right? <laughs> I know, I know. But, but uh, you know, what do you think the future is going to be like that we're leaving behind to say this is how we understood it uh, going forward? Well, well, first, I do want to applaud the ceiling at Grand Central Terminal because <laughs> it, it's, it's really one of those wonderful monuments. And I even did a paper on stars on the ceiling, this tradition of painting the ceiling with the sky and why this makes sense in architecture 
that goes all the way back from the oldest period in Egypt right up to the present. And Grand Central Terminal is, is part of that. And uh, the, in fact, it's interesting that that's in New York where you really can't see stars. And yet <laughs> people like it. They, they It's a way for them to bond just as Manhattan Henge uh, is now, you know, just the, uh, the, the fortuitous alignment of uh, the grid plan of, of uh, New York City uh, it gives you a day when the sun sets dramatically and they close the streets for God's they sake. They do. Now, what's wrong they do. with that? It's, 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 it's around the corner from our office and they crowd the bridges and everything just to watch the sunset. So, yeah. so, so uh, the, you know, if, if those if, if myths of those ancient events persist somehow and the old grid plan of New York uh, is maintained uh, a few centuries from now, maybe people will be exploring that. And I often have speculated about people coming up to the um, the old ruins of Palomar Observatory uh, long after it's stripped to its foundations. And what in the world could they they tell about <laughs> what was going on? And it would be very limited. They would uh, they would probably see some cardinal orientation to north, south, east and west and some curiously placed buildings. Uh, but it would otherwise be very mystifying. And so, in fact, it's it's really for us. Uh, if if people want to know how we remain bonded with the sky, it's probably not going to be in monumental architecture. It's probably not even going to be uh, in places on the ground. It's mm. far more likely to be in all of those graphic images that we wind up putting on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Wow. wow. So, so I have two question areas left to address. Uh, and the first one is the the sales of if you want to call it that or marketing i guess is a better term of science to the public so i think we've both been contacted by and possibly worked with uh ancient aliens and shows of this type there's a, there's a new spin-off called william shatner's unexplained that i've done some work with and that that's the show the unexplained is working a little harder to stay with science i can't say that i think ancient aliens is yeah doing too much but but there is some effort there to bring that a little more into alignment with things that i think we both believe but just in broader terms these shows are so po ancient aliens is on its 14th season so clearly it's popular it's an easy sell when you sort of push things up to that level people get excited and it's a lot easier than what you do and probably than, than what i do uh, how do you address that in your outreach and your philosophy of of educating people? Well, I think, Rod, it just goes back to that same fundamental principle, which is at least as a starting point, just the facts that our job really is to concentrate on those things that lots of people, even if it's not everybody, lots of people recognize it are, are useful, interesting and engaging for them. And that really begins with the direct experience of the night sky for us since we're astronomy. So we're in the business of putting people eyeball to the universe so that they have not a, a indirect uh, sense of what's going on, but it's meaningful to them for being in a place with their own eyes looking at something. And I think that that is always a vehicle for uh, what expanding the the individual's sense of, of, a, of a greater uh, world out there and, and what in detail it is. There's no way you can beat back all of the idiocy in the world. Uh, th there never has been. I mean, Holden Caulfield and the Catcher in the Rye put it very succinctly when he did. And we encountered the same kind of thing at a different scale 
uh, back in the 60s and 70s, except then it had more to do uh, with books that would come out. Mm. And and you would from time to time, you know, you could do lectures and, and there, in fact, the Center for Inquiry, uh, which is a national organization, tries to deal with with pseudoscience in that respect. And and I think every time uh, uh, you, you get one of these efforts to knock down something that, you know, is patently false. It's worth doing, but it's not something that everybody can do all the time. You just do what you can. You just do the best you can. And we're never going to stop everybody from uh, watching uh, the, the uh, ancient aliens or anything like that. You know, we contribute this to this to uh, this problem ourselves every time we talk about the supermoon. Uh, the supermoon <laughs> is going to be coming out and uh, you ought to go look at it. And in fact, there is no way anybody <laughs> can tell the difference between the supermoon and the plain old regular moon. I'm but, so but two things happen. <laughs> One, they go out and they look at it, which is yeah. great. Yeah. And then the second thing is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because that moon on the horizon looking big is an illusion. It's a centuries old known illusion. And we don't even quite fully understand it. But they see the moon looks big and therefore it's the super moon. So how do, how are we going to make sure that uh, people understand that correctly? I think you just keep saying it over and over and over again. And some of them do and some of them don't. Well, and, and you just planted a seed because we're sitting here. The reason Tarek is cringing right now is because we're sitting here with Dr. Clickbait. But, you know, it's got to happen because that's... that's I don't do clickbait, but I, I lean fully into Supermoon. Uh, no, no, it? Super Blood Serpent <laughs> Willow Moon. Uh, the, the, there was one that was blue. But, but that's right. I'm not faulting you. You know, 2015. Keep in, keep, keep, in mind, keep in mind that this is good for astronomy. Uh, and the the only thing is every once in a while we get a little subversive and we tried to promote the mini moon for a while. Uh, we found that people didn't pick up on it. And then independently, <laughs> some folks elsewhere in the country have now started focusing on that one, too. So when you got the smallest moon. But if I remember correctly, you did some uh, I don't remember the titles, but basically ancient astronomy shows at the observatory not too long after the era of crazy von Donneken that was both embracing the notion of archaeoastronomy, but also trying to address some of these exaggerations. Do I remember correctly? Yeah, you do. We we did programs like that, and there were a couple of planetarium shows, lecture series and uh, a couple of planetarium shows were organized. And in fact, the last chapter of my first book, which was one of the early books on archaeoastronomy and what was going on, that last chapter was all about these astronomical myths that are associated with ancient monuments to try to show how you distinguish one kind of study from from the other. So that that is actually part of the heritage here. And it continued right up, of course, until um, uh, we, we had the whole 2012 end of the universe Maya calendar. And mm -hmm. I want you to know that Griffith Observatory deliberately stayed open to one minute past midnight, that is after the 21st of December, to ensure that the world didn't end. And we were <laughs> successful. Well, I'm very glad that, that you did that because you probably kept it from happening. Uh, in closing, I'd, I'd just like to ask, uh, you've written a number of sensational books. Do you have any new ones on the way and any other projects planned with either the observatory or on your own that you'd like to discuss? Well, you're very kind to ask that. Uh, the two quick elements of that. Uh, no new books on the way, but the last one, the observatory actually published a lovely book called Public Astronomy Los Angeles Style, 
uh, which is about unknown history of the development of oh. popular astronomy in Los Angeles. And, of course, Griffith Observatory is a key part of that. And that's available at the Griffith Observatory website, uh, griffithobservatory.org, or at the, the Stellar Emporium uh, here on site. Uh, no other publications really underway for me at the moment, but we do have a number of projects that are brewing for 2024. We're focusing on the major standstill of the moon. Happens every 18.6 years, and we've got alignments here, and there are a couple other places where we're going to be doing remote live stream broadcasts of those. We're producing a giant sculpture to go into gravity's stairway, which connects the historic level down below. That'll come in in 2024 related to the earliest constellations. And and then finally, we're producing a film for Pacific Standard Time, the Getty Foundation uh, initiative. And, and this year, it's all about art and science collide. And so we're doing um, a rather uh, unexpected film that will play here daily multiple times in the Leonard Nimoy event horizon when that thing is finished uh, late in 2024. Well, that's great. And I just want to thank you and I want to thank our audience for joining us today for our discussion about Griffith Observatory and ancient astronomy. Dr. Krupp, uh, where can people keep track of your upcoming activities, books and everything else? Ed Krupp. Uh, I don't know that they can keep track of me, but they should keep track of Griffith Observatory. And they're at the website, uh, which is GriffithObservatory.org. And, of course, Griffith Observatory Foundation, which is also right there at the website. And the foundation is the place that really does some of the sort of the uh, immediate uh, announcements and things of, uh, that are taking place. And so you definitely want to connect with them. In fact, everybody should join Griffith Observatory Foundation. Just make it easier for you. Okay, you heard it here, folks. After you've joined Club Twit, make sure you go join Griffith Observatory <laughs> Foundation. Tarek, where can we keep track of where you're wasting your time on video games these days? <laughs> well, it's, I don't think it's a waste. It's constructive uh, eye-hand coordination, right? <laughs> um, no, uh, you'll find me on space.com, as always, or on the Twitter, at Tarek J. Malik. This weekend, I'll be uh, waiting with bated breath to see how the Falcon Heavy by SpaceX uh, fares when it launches... Um, an X-37B secret mission for the U.S. Space Force. That'll be really exciting on Sunday. And uh, looking ahead to the, the Geminid uh, meteor shower and the occultation of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice by an asteroid on Oof. December 12th. All right. You're lucky he didn't show up in your lap. And of course, <laughs> you can always find me at pilebooks.com and at astromagazine.com. Don't forget to drop us a line at twist at twit.tv. That's T-W-I-S at twit.tv. We welcome your comments, suggestions, and ideas, and answer each and every email. Don't forget to check out space.com, the websites of the name, and the National Space Society at nss.org for our brand new redesigned website. Thank you very much, Rod. Um, everything that you, you want, love about space is there. New episodes of this podcast publish every Friday on your favorite podcatcher. Please do us a favor, like and subscribe. We're counting on you. Uh, we want to make it into the second and third quarter of next year, and we need you to encourage your friends to listen so we can boost our numbers. There, I just said it straight up. So give us a thumbs up or five stars and tell everybody you know. Finally, don't forget, you can get all the great programming on the Twit Network ad-free on Club Twit, as well as some extras that are only available there for a measly $7 a month. You've heard Leo talk about what the needs are of this network, so stand up and be counted. Finally, you can follow the Twit Tech Podcast Network at Twit on Twitter and Facebook and twit.tv on Instagram. Thank you very much, everybody, and we'll see you next time. 
Listeners of this program get an ad-free version if they're members of Club Twit. $7 a month gives you ad-free versions of all of our shows, plus membership in the Club Twit Discord, a great clubhouse for Twit listeners. And finally, the Twit Plus feed with shows like Stacy's Book Club, The Untitled Linux Show, and more. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. And thanks for your support.